Well, we're continuing this morning in our study of the book of Romans. We're in Romans 8. We're going to be looking at verses 26 through 30. And uh, Brother Nate read those verses earlier, so I won't read them again. But just by way of introduction, obviously it's the gift buying and gift giving, gift receiving season. And uh, it made me think, what's popular these days um, when it comes to gift giving? I, I don't know. My, my kids, they want real estate, stock, and Bitcoin. <laughs> uh, times have changed. So I was, I was curious. So I looked at uh, the goodhousekeeping.com website just for an idea. Uh, I'm not going to go through all of these, but they have the 25 most popular Christmas gifts you can buy your friends and family in 2021. So this is just a flavor. So here is a portable campfire. They say that's number one. I don't know if I should believe them. Three-in-one Apple charging station, which uh, Android users probably don't find very popular. Uh, an EcoSmart sweatshirt. I don't know what makes it EcoSmart, but it's an EcoSmart sweatshirt. Lightweight, medium, crossbody bag with tassel. That's number four. Cute. Celestial constellation necklace. Temperature control smart mug. You control it with your smartphone. It's $120. If I get one of these for Christmas, I'm going to return it and get the cash. Knit cuffed beanie. Whoops, let's see here. There we go. Looks like a really nice beanie. The only way I would ever wear a beanie that costs $34 is if someone gave it to me. Name earrings, which if I wore earrings, I'd get those for sure. A 100 movies scratch-off poster. A live bonsai tree. So that's 10 and so I had to add a number 11 because this is my favorite one. This is a moon lamp. I think that's so cool. So there you go. 11 out of the top 25 most popular Christmas gifts you can buy your friends and family in 2021 according to Good Housekeeping. And what all those gifts have in common, among other things, I suppose, they're probably all made in China, probably all stuck in the L.A. Harbor right now, but besides that, um, they're all going to perish away. They're all temporary. Um, I, it's amazing to me as uh, our life progresses and we go through things and organize our home and all of that, how many things we give away or throw away that uh, once we received or that our kids received from us, uh, all of those things will perish with the using. They're not eternal, and the blessed thing about what we're going to be looking at today, we're going to be looking at three priceless gifts for believers that God blesses believers with that will last for eternity. Uh, they'll never grow old. They'll never grow out of fashion. They'll never uh, be unuseful. They'll never collect dust or decay, but they will benefit us now and for all of eternity. So that's what we're going to be 
looking at from Romans chapter 8, verses 26 through 30. Priceless gifts for believers. And the first one is the Spirit's intercession. The Spirit's intercession in verses 26 through 27. So notice in Romans chapter 8, verses 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit, and this is the Holy Spirit, helps us in our weakness. Do you ever experience weakness in your prayer life? Do you ever lack uh, energy or interest or oomph in your prayers? Or do you ever wonder what you should pray for? Well, the... The good news is that God doesn't just say to us, do better, pray better, pray more. Instead, God in the person of the Holy Spirit actually comes alongside of us, truthfully, inside of us, and he, and he helps us in our weakness. And so Paul goes on to say, here's part of our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And that word groanings is the same uh, word that Paul has been using since back in verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And later on, verse 23 uh, we groan inwardly as we await uh, eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. It's that same groaning. And this time it's the Spirit himself inter who's interceding for us with groanings too deep for words. So these are spiritual groanings. Unheard groanings. Divine Groanings, because it's the Holy Spirit himself. And what is the Holy Spirit groaning concerning? Well, he's uh, groaning in the process of his interceding for us. That's a very important word, too. It's used here in verse 26. It's also used in verse 27. The Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And you'll recognize the word... In the Greek, it's the word geo, um, and it's the source of our English word synergy or synergism, which means uh, to work together with, to be active together with. And so that's what the Holy Spirit does in a mysterious way, in a way that we can't hear audibly, but in a way that's, that's real and internal to us, the Holy Spirit is helping us in our prayers. He's, he's interceding for us internally. He, uh, he's making up, as it were. He's helping us in these three areas of need. Weakness concerning prayer, praying for the right things, and lack of emotion. And all of these Areas, the Holy Spirit, who's our helper, is interceding for us. And how does God respond to the Spirit's intercession 
in our behalf. Notice verse 27. And he who searches hearts, this is God. God is the one who searches hearts. He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The way to think of this is that the Holy Spirit and God the Father are on the same page. There's no lack of communication. Uh, there's no being off in terms of what the Spirit is for and what the Father is for. Uh, there's no uh, being off track in terms of what the Holy Spirit is interceding for. We might struggle with what the will of God is for our lives or for a particular matter that we're praying for, there is no doubt, there's no uh, uncertainty regarding the will of God when it comes to the Spirit's intercession. He intercedes for us exactly, 100%, every single time according to the will of God. And it's really encouraging to think of this whole process of prayer because the Trinity himself is involved in prayer. We're praying to the Father. Jesus said in uh, the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven. And then Jesus is interceding for us in heaven before the throne of grace. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25 Jesus is all, he, he ever lives to make intercession for us. But that's, that's in heaven. And then the Holy Spirit is interceding within us. And so the Trinity himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, every person of the Trinity is involved in our prayers. It's an amazing thing. And so don't just concentrate on your weak and pathetic and infrequent prayers. And of course, I include myself in that. But even in our weak and pathetic and infrequent prayers, there's the God of the universe at work, interceding within us, interceding in heaven, delighting to give good gifts to his children and accomplishing great things. Commentator Robert Mounts wrote this about this passage. No passage of scripture provides greater encouragement for prayer. The spirit comes to the aid of believers who are baffled by the perplexity of prayer and, and he takes their concerns to God with an intensity far greater than we could ever imagine. Our groans become his as he intercedes on our behalf. And that is a priceless gift. That is a priceless gift. Secondly, in this passage, here's the second priceless gift for us to uh, think about and treasure. And it is the knowledge that all things work together for our good. Verse 28. Paul writes in verse 28, I know that different translations uh, say it a little bit differently. The New King James says, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, 
to those who are the called according to his purpose. The ESV says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. So let's step through that. That is an incredible promise. Romans 8.28. Let's step through it. Paul says that we know and we know. How? Well, I think that this is related to the Holy Spirit's work that he just wrote about in verses 26 and 27 and also uh, in verses 5 through 8. We know because the Holy Spirit has renewed our minds so that we now see the world, we see reality through the lens of Scripture. And so now we see and know the God of the Bible as not only sovereign over his creation, he's on his throne, he's in control, he does whatever he pleases and no one can say to him, what have you done? No one can frustrate him. God is sovereign, but he's also good and wise. We discussed that this morning in the adult, uh, well, in the, the prayer meeting. If God is good, but he's not sovereign, then he can wish for good things that never come to pass. He's, he's helpless to bring to pass his will. But if God is sovereign and he's not good, uh, I say it reverently, he could be imagined to be a monster. But God is both good and sovereign and he's wise. He knows what is good and he knows how to bring it to pass. That's the God of the Bible. Sovereign, good, and wise. And the Holy Spirit has opened our eyes to see the universe our lives from that perspective. We know. But notice that this is not true for everyone, this promise of Romans 8.28. You can't say to everyone without distinction that everything works together for your good. It's not true. Paul says that this promise applies to those who love God to those who are called according to promise. And that's actually one group of people. It's two ways of describing the same group of people. Believers, or those who are going to become believers. Those are the ones who are described like this, to those who love God, to those who are called according to promise. These Different descriptions work hand in hand. And if you think about it, those who love God do so because they were called according to promise. Until we're called according to promise, we don't love God. It's not our natural state to love God. Paul described our natural state in Romans uh, chapter 3, remember, there's none righteous, no, not, God, uh, not one. No one understands God. No one seeks for God. We're all under the wrath of God. 
And in chapter 5, verses 6 through 10, he describes us as ungodly, unrighteous, uh, dead, enemies of God. People described in that way do not love God. That's not our natural default position. Instead, God must take the initiative. God must powerfully, effectually call us to himself. In fact, that's what Paul describes over in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You should look there. There's a few verses I want to show you. In the Bible, there are two senses of calling. There's, there's a general call that applies to everyone without distinction. That's what happens whenever the gospel is preached. When the gospel is preached, sinners are called to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus meant when he said that many are called, but few are chosen. But then there's a calling that is effective, that is powerful, that accomplishes every single time God's eternal purpose. It always results in the salvation of sinners. That's the calling that Paul refers to in Romans 8.28, and he elaborates on a bit in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So notice in 1 Corinthians 1.1, Paul says, he describes himself or introduces himself as Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. This is clearly not the general call that goes out through the word of God because not everyone is called by the will of God to be an apostle like Paul was. Verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who are in every place, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. How and for what reason, by what means, were the believers in Corinth saints? Because God called them powerfully, effectually to be saints. If you're a believer here this morning, how did that happen? God called you to be a saint. You may not have recognized it at the time. You heard the general call of the gospel and it at some point in your life made sense to you and you realized that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. You realize that living for sin is an empty, fruitless life and that instead living for Jesus Christ who uh, loved sinners like you and died for you is way more fulfilling. And so you came to Christ. You repented of your sins, put your trust in Christ. But behind the scenes, and here's the point of Paul in the Bible, behind the scenes, there was the invisible, gracious powerful hand of God calling you to himself. Notice in verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And then 
in verse 24. In fact, if you back up to verse 22 in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. There's the outward call of the gospel. We are to preach the gospel to all creatures, make disciples of all nations without distinction. That's what Paul was doing. But, he says in verse 24, but to those who are called a different group, a group that is distinct from the group that, the entire group that hears the gospel in verse 23, there's that group and then there's a subgroup, a subset in verse 24 that is actually saved. That group Paul calls the called. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And it's the calling of God that makes the difference. If it wasn't for the calling of God, then all of us would, would continue on thinking of the gospel as a stumbling block and folly. But because of the powerful, effective, gracious calling of God, now Christ to us is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And there's more passages it's just that there's so many here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I just want you to see this is the group to whom the promise of Romans 8.28 is given. It's not to everyone. It is the called. And then notice the promise itself. All things work together for good. All things. Everything in the universe that has any impact on our lives, big and small, good and evil and indifferent, painful, joyful, material, immaterial, telescopic, microscopic. Everything. All things work together for good. They work together, not in and of themselves. All things have no power. They have no wisdom. They have no plan. They have no wherewithal to self-arrange into our good. All things work together for our good because the God who's the creator of heaven and earth, the God of creation and providence, he's actively working all things together for our good. And by the way, he knows what our good is. There is an all-powerful, invisible force, a guiding hand that causes all things in our lives to fit together like puzzle pieces into a big picture that God declares good. Each individual piece of that puzzle may not be good in and of itself. It may hurt. It may actually be a violation of God's revealed will. 
but placed exactly where God places it in that puzzle. It does not cease to be sin or evil, if in fact it is, but it is able to work together as part of all things for our good. And of course, the most obvious example of that is the crucifixion of Jesus. The worst evil that has ever been committed on on earth, because Jesus is the God-man, holy, harmless, undefiled, didn't know sin, he knew no sin. The worst miscarriage of justice in human history, put to death, murdered, a terrible sin. And yet, the Bible says that he was delivered up by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God. So that worst thing imaginable actually is working together and has worked together for our ultimate good. And then think of every other event in human history and in your own life. They are all working together for our good. And so we talk about good. What's good? That which accomplishes God's good purpose. His eternal plan. That which accrues to our eternal benefit. And uh, peeking ahead a little bit in verse 29, we're going to come back to this, but Uh, that which conforms us to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. That's our good. And included in that may be pain and suffering and persecution, trials and tribulation, loss, heartbreak, disappointment. And yet... All those things work together for our ultimate, God-determined, God-evaluated good. And only the God of the Bible has this capability. No other entity, no other idol that the mind of fallen humankind has ever invented has this capability. It's Interesting to think about it in those terms. Here the Bible has been in circulation for thousands of years. And there's been all this opportunity for mankind to invent a more exalted, a more glorious, a more profound God who can fulfill Romans 8.28 and he's never done it. Only the God of the Bible can fulfill this great and precious promise. Again, all sovereign, good, wise, gracious, merciful. That's the God of the Bible. (coughs) Pardon me. Let me give you just a real, real quick snapshot of some passages that lead to the conclusion of Romans 8.28. So in Romans, look over and Romans chapter 11 and verse 36. Romans chapter 11 and verse 36. 
By the way, backing up in verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgment and how inscrutable his ways. We are not here to try to solve every riddle and uh, solve every puzzle about God. It's impossible. As soon as someone claims to do that, what they've done is they've created a God who fit, fits in a man-sized box. The God of the Bible, the God who really is, does not fit in any box. We can't ultimately search him out. We can't um, exhaust the knowledge of God. We can't understand everything that he does. <coughs> and he doesn't depend on us. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift uh, to him that he might be repaid? He's absolutely uh, sovereign, self-contained, self-existent, self-sufficient. He needs no one. But everything and everyone needs him. Verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. And what is it all about? To him be glory forever. Amen. That's the theology of Romans 8.28. And then... Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11 that we as believers have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So Romans 8.28, all things work together for good, but that's because in Ephesians 1.11, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. In Hebrews 1.3, Jesus Christ, the eternal word of God, the son of God, upholds the universe by the word of his power. And then an Old Testament illustration of Romans 8.28 is Genesis 50 and verse 20. And it's toward the end of the book of Genesis, but it's towards the end of the amazing story of Joseph and his brothers, and I trust you remember the story. <clears throat> Joseph uh, was unwise and perhaps uncharitable towards his brothers. His brothers became jealous of him. Uh, they were going to kill him, and instead they only sold him into slavery, uh, into Egypt. He gets taken into slavery, thrown into prison, and a couple of fellow uh, inmates end up forgetting about him. Pretty soon he's, he's uh, uh, by God's amazing providence, he's raised up to be Pharaoh's right-hand man. And then there ends up being a, uh, a famine in, in a lot of the world, and it also hit the land of Israel. And so lo and behold, Joseph's brothers, who originally sold him into slavery, end up coming to him as governor in Egypt, begging for grain. And one thing leads to another. Uh, they realize who this governor of Egypt is. It's, it's Joseph, their, brothers, uh, their brother, and he, they're scared for their lives. 
And then Joseph ends up saying to them, verse 5020, you meant it. What's the it? The story of his life since they sinned against him. That terrible scheme that resulted in everything that Joseph went through. You meant it for evil. God meant it. It's the same it. Everything that happened to Joseph, God meant it. It's not that God designed and predestined the good parts of Joseph's life, but the bad parts of Joseph's life, God just stepped back and let deism take over. That's not the God of the Bible. No, God meant it, the whole shebang. But he meant it for a good purpose. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. That's Romans 8.28. Here's a summary. It's from the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 5. I think it's exactly the same thing as the Westminster on divine providence. And in that paragraph, these Christians who went before us wrote, God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, upholds, directs, arranges, and governs all creatures and things from the greatest to the least by his perfectly wise and holy providence to the purpose for which they were created. He governs according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and unchangeable counsel of his own will. His providence leads to the praise of the glory of his of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. That's the knowledge that all things work together for our good. And in Paul's thinking, the clearest, most valuable, most profound example of Romans 8.28 is what God did to save us. So we see that next. Here's the third priceless gift the golden chain of redemption. The golden chain of re redemption. So back in Romans chapter 8, he says in verse 29, for those whom he foreknew. What does foreknow here mean? And this is controversial. Now, I won't go too far into the controversy, but you'll notice Paul's language. Paul doesn't say, for those about whom God foreknew or had foreknowledge. In other words, it's not that God knew about us, but instead, Paul's language is really uh, specific for those whom he foreknew. He didn't just know facts and figures and events. God foreknew people. Just like back in Genesis, Adam knew his wife and Eve bore, bore a son. It refers to a personal, intimate relationship. 
Not just that God knew about them, but God knew them personally and intimately ahead of time, before the foundation of the world, in fact. In fact, another way of, a synonymous way of expressing this is as Jeremiah said it in Jeremiah 31 and verse 3, that God loved them, knew them intimately, loved them with an everlasting love. So whom he foreknew, Paul goes on to say, he predestined. That is, God decreed beforehand. God determined their destiny. What? So whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his son. This is our ultimate destiny as believers. This is God's ultimate design. Not that we would be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Although if you think about it, in glory we will be ultimately healthy, wealthy, and wise. But God's design for us is that we would be like Christ. We would be conformed into the image of his son, Christ-like. As Christ is, in terms of his character, in terms of his, um, his obedience to his father, in terms of his holiness, that's what we are to be. And that's what God is determined to bring about. And the goal is that Christ would be, uh, uh, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So there are many, many that God had, has foreknown and predestined to be conformed to the image of his son because Jesus will have many brothers and sisters. In fact, Revelation chapter 7, we're told that this crowd is a multitude that no one can number from every tribe, nation, kindred, and tongue. But it's all by God's foreknowing, predestinating grace. And God has an eternal plan that Paul lays out in verse 29, that God then executes in history. If you think about it, so many of the mistakes in your life, and I know it's true in my life, are mistakes because we acted without a plan. Sometimes we have a plan and we violate that plan, but sometimes we don't think things through. We act without thinking. There's no foresight and we just stumble along through our lives sometimes, and no wonder things are chaotic at times. That is not the God of the Bible. He has a plan that he perfectly executes. He's not learning as he goes along. He's not learning from his mistakes. He is not acting without a plan. It is all according to his design. And so he goes on in verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. That's this effectual call that we saw earlier. 
and those whom he called, he also justified. Remember justification? It is God's pronouncement that we are righteous, not because we actually are righteous, but because of the righteousness of God imputed to us as a gift through faith in Jesus. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Notice how there's no loss. There's not 100% predestined. And then most of those are called, and then half of them are justified, and 10% make it to glory. No, 100%, every single one without loss, predestined, called, justified, glorified. No loss, no failure, no frustration. This is the God of the Bible. And what an amazing, <coughs> what an amazing complex of promises we have as believers. And what an amazing God who stands behind these promises. God is not a God who makes empty promises that he can't keep. But every single promise that he makes, he will keep. Commentator William Hendrickson wrote this to conclude. When Paul states that to those who love God and are called according to his purpose, all things work together for good, he is not just thinking of those things that can be seen round about us now or those events that are taking place now. No, he includes even time and eternity. The chain of salvation he is discussing reaches back to the quiet recess of eternity past and forward into the boundless future. Wow. How blessed we are to be children of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the incredible blessing of this passage. Thank you that you, the sovereign God of all of the universe, have set yourself to bring about your good and gracious purposes for your children. We pray, Lord, that you will help us during this holiday season and always to be those who don't look at life like atheists or theists, who or deists, I should say, who have no hope or whose hope is temporary and fading because it's rooted and dependent on this world. But help us, Lord, to uh, have the outlook on life that is consistent and appropriate as your children. Hope that is eternal. Hope that is sure. Hope that is good. We pray these things in Jesus' worthy name. Amen.